0: Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram, and welcome to InFocus, the Hindu's Analysis Podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Welcome to the Hindu's In Focus Podcast, I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. This episode is part of our Expert View series on the InFocus Podcast, covering various issues related to COVID-19. It's an important episode because we really get into great detail about strategies for containing COVID-19 and the different kind of options for testing that are now available to us. We record this podcast at a crucial juncture, we are in day 16 of the lockdown, and as the stipulated 21-day time period draws to a close, it looks increasingly likely that the lockdown may be extended, as various states are only now getting to grips with the extent of the disease and identifying various clusters or hotspots. What is the best strategy for containment of these hotspots now, both in the remaining period of the lockdown and moving forward? These are some of the questions we will be asking, and I'm joined today by an expert in infectious diseases, Dr. Subramanyam Swaminathan, a senior consultant at the Gleneagles Global Hospital in Chennai. Dr. Subramanian Swaminathan, welcome to the InFocus podcast.
0: Yeah, good afternoon.
1: So today, Dr. India's coronavirus cases have crossed 6,000 now, and we are on day 16 of the lockdown. Looking ahead, reports indicate that the government is considering a containment plan for areas that have a large number of cases. Will this be the best method to deal with virus? And what does experience from previous epidemics or pandemics, such as the H1N1 epidemic, tell us?
0: So... Obviously, right now, everybody is petrified about what's going to happen when the lockdown ends. Yes. The short answer is we don't know. The reason being, you can't fight a war without data. And what we need is data. I don't have all the data that the government has, but let me explain how it works. We have a new problem, a new virus. None of us have any immunity to it to start with all of us have to get immunity only by two mechanisms. One, get the infection and get better, or two, get a vaccine. Unfortunately, the vaccine is a long way away. So that's going to take time. So the short answer is, we'll have to get through this problem. Now, when they talk about flattening the curve, they're trying to mitigate it by making it a little slower and not have everybody fall sick at the same time. But the point is, as long as you have a vulnerable population, it's going to circle back. Let's say by an act of God, we are able to control it here. It's going to circle back the minute we open it out again. And China is petrified of the same problem. Japan, they seem to have control, but the numbers are now starting to rise. So in uh, in short, the problem is, till we reach steady state, which is what we call as herd immunity, we are going to be vulnerable. So the point is, how do we stabilize ourselves in the journey there? lockdown is one way of doing it that's fine but it has to be time driven in that we can't remain in lockdown for say for a year so what we need to do is we need to do other forms we need to maximize the immunity in the younger age group where the risk is very low see 50 percent of our population is under twenty-five years of age so we need to make sure that the disease or the infection that happens happens disproportionately in the younger age group than the older age group because the older ones are the vulnerable ones second Correct. we we also need to make sure that the speed of transmission is slowed down, so that we are able to monitor what's happening and also control the narrative. Third, we need to identify the areas where it is propagating very fast and find the areas where it is not propagating at all. For example, if there are some areas where there's no propagation, those areas can be released with some periodic monitoring. But the ones which are still going very fast need to be quarantined much further, obviously. So it's a combination of a push or a pull or a you know, reassessment and things like that, which is probably the most sensible way of doing it. And I think it has to be data driven. If we can find like the Delhi government, what they're doing, they're trying to find hotspots, they're trying to see how they can control it. So that let's talk a little bit a
1: about that, doctor. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the hotspot containment and uh, the plans for quarantining certain zones where there are a high number of cases. So is there experience from other countries who have managed to flatten the curve that shows that this method works?
0: Yeah, so that's basically the second part of it. So that's good. You know, that is a more lo- data-driven approach. South Korea, they realized that from one church in Daigo, they had fanned out, created hotspots everywhere else. And they also caught it at a time. Actually, they caught it a little later than we did as far as the, the rise was concerned. We started a little early, so we have a little bit of an advantage that way. But they went after these hotspots with aggressive testing. And they found those places. They quarantined those places, meaning when they said quarantine, they kept them all in their homes. And they went home, house to house, on a regular basis, you know, distributing supplies so that people did not have to come out. And they extinguished it that way. Now, that's probably one way of doing it. I believe at Bilwar also some similar approach had been taken. If that is so, that makes more sense. But
1: here's yes, the that is the model,
0: that is the model, the Rajasthan yeah, model. model. Yeah. But my worry is, is it scalable? And for that, you need to find all the hotspots. People are saying that these are the hotspots. See, it's where you don't have data that you need to be most petrified. If you're not finding cases in XYZ district or ABC district, that's where I need more data because I really need to be sure that there is no transmission there. And unless I have that data, for me to, without data, open it out, could end up blowing up in my face and would do a lot of good work that's been done so far. So that's why we had suggested that maybe this kind of zero zero surveillance based uh, data should be obtained from various areas. And based on that, you decide whether more lockdown is required or a phased withdrawal of the lockdown is possible, or maybe opening up some areas and keeping some areas blocked off is the answer. I think that will have to be the way forward.
1: Doctor, so moving on from this uh, containment plan question, Uh, Could you explain to us a little bit about the various testing methodologies? The ICMR has now uh, given out guidelines for the rapid antibody test, which searches for antibodies, and we also have the RT-PCR test, which confirms the presence of the virus's genetic material. These are the two diagnostic tools we have, correct?
0: Correct. So, could you
1: explain to us which is more accurate, what are the chances of false positive in both, and are the results from both comparable?
0: So, to me, these are tests for different purposes. For example, the RT-PCR is a good test, which is for individual diagnostic. If I have a sick patient who comes in today with some breathing difficulty and cough and fever and things like that, and if I want to know if the person has coronavirus, COVID, then the PCR is probably the best test. Why? Because the PCR looks at the virus itself. So if you're looking for the virus, the best thing to do is look for the virus. The antibody-based tests are looking for the body's response to the virus. And the body's response takes time. So even if the virus enters the human body today, it takes about at least 7 to 10 days for the human body to react to it and develop the antibody. And here's the kicker. There is no specified time after which it comes up. Some people, it may come up in 3-4 days. Some people may take 10 days or longer. So the problem is, if the antibody test is negative today, it does not mean the person does not have the infection. So it may develop an antibody response after a few days. So retesting may be necessary. But let's look at it. The PCR test is a primarily a test for diagnosis. A PCR test is very expensive. A PCR test requires a lot of expertise. A PCR test can be set up only in a few labs. A PCR test is not ready for field testing. And finally, a PCR test will not tell you about the herd immunity situation or the density of infection does it make sense so far the the antibody test is a test which is a which can even be a point of care test they have things called what is called a lateral flow assay which is almost like a urine pregnancy test you know you put a drop of blood in it wait for about 20 minutes and then it gives you bands you know you can do this on the field you don't need any special you know special equipment so it's so easy finger pick just like you do blood sugar testing like that so The point with those kind of tests is, those are not meant for early diagnosis. And in fact, it's not even been approved for any diagnostic intervention by WHO as of right now, and not for diagnostic use for any of the agencies so far. It still needs more data. And like I said, it takes time. You can't use it within the first seven to 10 days, and a negative test has to be rechecked. But the problem is, if a patient is going to get into trouble in seven days itself, then this test is not going to help me decide what to do for the individual patient. But it's a great test to tell me what's happening in the community. Let me see. Let me say, uh, okay, uh, Mr. K. J. decides decides uh, he wants to know what's happening in Bayur Vihar or he wants to know uh, he, what's happening in Patpar Ganj or something like that. The best thing to do is send about 10 people with 100 kids each in all these places and then do random testing and look at their blood levels if all of them are negative on the antibody test remember if they have got anti, you know infection within the last seven you know at least 7 days or earlier they would they would uh, ideally be antibody positive if all hundred of them are negative that kind of tells me there's really no infection in that area till about a week ago and if the lockdown is pretty good they should have got the infection in the intervening one week as well but if i see quite a few antibody positives on that that basically means i am missing a lot of infection in that area So the antibody-based tests are point of care, they're very easy to use, they're quite cheap, Uh, they don't need to be transported to specialized centers and things like that, but they have limitations on the ability to diagnose.
1: That makes perfect sense. Thank you. So now since you've been talking to us about herd immunity a little bit, doctor, how how important is this when experts say that around 80% of people infected will recover without any significant medical intervention? So, so in that case, in that case, does an extended period of lockdown become counterproductive?
0: So, herd immunity. See, the problem is somehow herd immunity has become a bad word, and yes. somehow people think herd immunity is a, uh, uh, is an approach to control the infection. No, herd immunity is a natural phenomenon. Herd immunity is what happens in practically every disease. For example, when you vaccinate for measles you need to have 95% measles coverage. Why? All you need is about 5 to 10% of vulnerable population for measles to take hold again. So therefore, if 95% of your herd or your population is immune to measles, measles cannot get into your population. What is the practical utility of this? In uh, Western uh, United States and some of these hipster communities where they believe that vaccination is bad for you, they realize that when vaccination levels slip, Measles makes a comeback, and that's exactly what's happened. And that's what herd immunity essentially is. So, herd immunity is not an approach by scientists or by politicians or by epidemiologists to control a problem. Herd immunity is the natural history of any problem. That's the first thing that people need to understand. So, herd immunity is something that we calculate. How do we calculate? Very simple. It is defined as a relationship with the number of people who can be infected. For example if an infection can latch on to more people let's call it catchiness that's a nice word. if an infection is very catchy okay if it can move from one person to another person very quickly then you need more herd immunity if the infection is less catchy it is you need less herd immunity i will give you an example the h1n1 problem which happened back in 2009 now world over it went right through and through, and then it slowed down. After that, we have periodic cases, but we have not had a major problem like 2009, because there the catchiness or the R zero, as we call it, was 1.7. And if you do a simple mathematical equation, you can easily figure out that the herd immunity required is 40 percent. And you know what? CMC did a study looking at specific antibodies to H1N1 in their own population. It was exactly 40 percent. And it, uh, the subsequently in UK also they have done this kind of study, and they also found. Their uh, antibody levels were 40%, which means the herd immunity level was 40%, and the H111 has become less of a problem. So that determines how the epidemic stops, the herd immunity. Problem is, unless you know the R0 or the catchiness, you can't determine what percentage of herd immunity is required. Now, everybody is giving different numbers. The numbers which are generally be quoted are between 2.4 and 3.2 which is obviously means it's much more catchy than say h1n1 so let's assume for the sake of discussion your catchiness or your r0 is 2.8 right in the middle of that uh, frame if it is 2.8 you need a herd protection level of at least 64 to 65 percent which basically means 64 to 65% of your population has to go through this, get out and be immune so that the COVID virus cannot set hold again. Or at least if it does, it will not be this bad. You understand? So the problem is even if there are smaller pockets where you don't have numbers like this, which have been protected because of certain reasons, those areas are still vulnerable. It has to be 65% across the board in all areas for, based on the R0. But how we get there is the point. So the point is, herd immunity is a phenomenon that happens over time. The faster the herd immunity develops, the bigger the catastrophe. You understand? Like in 1918, uh, when the Spanish flu came out, the herd immunity was achieved within a year. But that basically meant it was a catastrophe, and 10% of the population died. So with COVID, again, if we achieve herd immunity very quickly, it basically means we're going to see huge amounts of infection and significant mortality on the other hand if we slow down the problem we will still get to herd immunity but we won't have so many people falling sick at the same time and therefore medical resources may not be so stretched and we may be able to handle it a lot better
1: so basically what you're trying to say doctor is that while we are trying to slow down the spread of the virus we are also hoping to achieve herd immunity so that both things operate at the same time
0: absolutely true absolutely true in that we, we are going to get the herd immunity, whether we think it's a good thing or a bad thing. And herd immunity protects us. See, that's the very concept of immunization. The, why, the reason why we vaccinate against uh, polio or MMR or any other infection that you can think of is to preserve the herd immunity. We want to preserve the herd, and that's why we vaccinate. The more people who involve themselves in this activity, the better it is for all of us. So it's not just a personal mandate. it's also Civic responsibility and a public responsibility, and that's why we vaccinate. So herd immunity is the order of the day. Now, how you get to herd immunity is what we are trying to modify by all of this. So, right now, with this extensive lockdown, we have reduced the communicability and therefore the catchiness has come down to practically zero. So we have artificially brought it down. Great. But we need to consolidate these gains and also remember that whatever we do, you know. Even if it, uh, we are fine for the next one month, a month later, if we open overseas travel, it's going to start coming all over again. How are we going to handle that? So it's we are playing a waiting game. And the longer we say we are going to deny this, the more difficult it becomes.
1: Talking about denying, the government has repeatedly claimed that India is still in the local transmission stage and not in the community transmission stage. So this means that the testing protocol continues to remain conservative, even when there are clear cases which have no travel history or contact with a positive person. So if community transmission is taking place, then what does it mean for the spread of the virus?
0: Okay. See, if I'm the virus, I don't care about faces. If I'm a right. COVID virus. Right. Let's say, okay, <laughs> I only know vulnerable people. I'm going to catch them and then move on. Right? See, the virus is only interested in propagating itself. All these spaces are all artificially created by us for us to decide which basket to put it in, and according to that basket, decide what intervention is appropriate. Right? So, these are man made baskets. These are not natural baskets. These are to help us understand the uh, appropriate steps in the epidemiology of the disease. So far, so good? Correct. Right. So, initially in phase one, all disease will be in international travel returnees. Great. The problem is not everybody behaved in an appropriate fashion. Some of them were missed because of certain technical issues and all that. And it's just impossible to screen everybody. If everybody had been in quarantine, like right now, China, what they're doing is they have electronic monitoring of anybody who's returning from overseas for 14 days. And they know, see, uh, uh, their uh, big daddy is watching everybody, everywhere, every time. So they're using big data and artificial intelligence to watch everybody. So they feel that they'll be able to control it. But that's difficult in a country like India. Here's the problem. See, for a virus to go from one person to another person is very, very fast. And ICMR just put out a number saying more than 400 people can be infected from a single person. So if that single person came in in February and that person infected another person and that person infected a third person, how long is this whole chain going to take? See, unless we have data, we can't be really sure. See, the low numbers are very reassuring, But we should be careful not to drink the Kool-Aid. We should know solid numbers. We should have good data driven ideas on how to handle this. So I don't care what the government says. If they want to say that it's only the early phase and we are not in the community phase, I'm OK with what they say. I am more interested in knowing how they are going to validate that hypothesis and generate an action plan. Because validate, again, you know, one person can say one thing. One person can say something else. Ultimately, who is right? Data has to say say this. That is why I'm very much in favor of this kind of cluster sampling based on zero surveillance, looking at that data, and then deciding what is the appropriate action going forward. Because otherwise, what will happen is it will be emotion-driven uh, ideas and thoughts, not science driven. And please understand, the world has had too many emotion-driven mistakes. I don't think we are ready to make mistakes like that because, one, we are a very, very populous country, and two, we are not a very rich country.
1: So data-driven zero surveillance can mean that different plans are enacted for different states. It doesn't have to be one uniform thing.
0: Absolutely. In fact, you know, (laughs) we had actually written up something like this. My colleague and I, who's a public health expert, we had written up something like this. See, there are quite a few things you need to look at. There are things which we can work in our favor. For example, one like I said, we, our demographic is very different from, say, the Western world. We have a much younger population. So why not allow the infection to propagate in the younger age group where really there's no risk and the, make that contribute to the herd immunity. If 50% of your population are under 25, we get them all infected. If you need to get a 64 or 65, it's, so that's one, one option. The second option is to look at these kind of hotspots by zero status surveillance and then releasing certain areas and then continuously keep testing and finding out what to do after that that's number two number three is don't look at india as a country but look at india as a continent look at it like say europe allow different states to peak at different times because our problem is our manpower our material power our uh, you know resources are limited and we can't be stretched at all points at the same time for example let us say uh tamil nadu and maharashtra and delhi happened to peak earlier the idea is to contain all the other states and then concentrate your manpower and resources in these three states so that you tide over that and by the time this starts waning, the next steps the next next set of states start getting into trouble and then we move things over there that may be one option see that is the principle behind the disaster preparedness plan for the united states if it is like dominoes as the dominoes keep falling we'll go behind it and keep catching all of them they didn't anticipate all the dominoes falling together at the same time that's why they got into trouble but that's still a workable solution if we still have a mixture of opening and lockdown based on data. And wherever the dominoes fall, we go set, uh, send our resources and catch them. The problem with that is state uh, health is a state subject. Health is not a central subject. So the states are free to decide what they want to do with regards to health. And that becomes a problem. This has to be a nationally coordinated effort. See, for pandemic preparedness, you have to have a national program. It can't be a state subject. If one state says, no, no, I'm going to do lockdown, one state says, I'm going to open up, I'm going to do whatever I want, then it becomes a bit of a problem because you really can't be responding in too many fronts in different, different manners. And a lack of coordination is going to be too expensive because we get stretched in terms of the resources that we have.
1: Right. So whether the lockdown is lifted or not, whether it's lifted and then brought back in again, uh, what one thing that we can do to protect ourselves, according to experts now, is that we wear a protective face covering or a mask. So, doctor, could you tell us a little bit more about this? There's been conflicting advice, but right now the advice seems to be that everyone should wear a protective face covering in order to prevent transmitting the virus.
0: It's confusing the daylights out of everybody, isn't it? uh, (laughs) People are doing so many flip-flops with uh, COVID. Well, see, the problem is that this is a new problem. We don't have all the data for it right on get-go. So, a lot of the answers have been extrapolated from SARS and MERS, which are related to coronavirus, but obviously their catchiness is much less than for COVID. See, the mortality was very high for MERS, but the catchiness was much lower. For SARS, the mortality is significantly higher, but the catchiness again was lower. Here, the catchiness is very high, but the mortality is low. So, obviously, not everything that applies there applies here. So, we are learning. Now, coming back to masks. WHO initially said, oh, it doesn't travel person to person. We now know probably is not really accurate. So there have been a lot of flip-flops that day. But this advice by the WHO is still correct. Who should wear a face mask? One, people who have respiratory problems, clearly. Two, people who, supposing there's a person sick at home who's quarantined, and if you are the caregiver for that person, then that person also wears a mask, and you also wear a proper mask. Third, healthcare providers. For the general public there is no data to show that wearing a regular mask really makes a difference. Why are we talking about some kind of a improvised or a homemade face mask? The reason is because they are now uh, showing data that when you cough, there is a little bit of uh, this, you know, spittle particles, which tends to hang out and start moving slowly. The good news is out in the open, where there's a lot of sunlight and there's a lot of air, this will get disseminated, this will get blown away very quickly. But in an enclosed place, let us say you walk into an office room and somebody coughs right at the end. We initially thought it was not a big deal. But sometimes those things can hang in the air, especially if you have a climate control environment and you know, really no ventilation and stuff like that. It can hang in the air and it can reach you. Now, this is only important if you're going out. If you're going to be at home in quarantine, you really don't need a mask at home because it really doesn't make a difference. But if you're going to go out and interact with other people, if you again two meters is better one meter is minimal but beyond that the mask may give some additional benefit is the consideration bottom line if you are not well wear a mask if you are around people who are not well wear a mask stay away from hospitals obviously unless you really have to be there and if you're going out in the public domain wearing a homemade mask some piece of cloth is a good idea here's the point generally speaking how do you know a cloth mask is a good uh, is good enough or not if you can hold it out to the light you should not be able to see the light coming through that's number one if you see the light coming through that means the mask is uh, the the cloth is too thin it really can't help you so try and find a piece of cloth where the light doesn't come through number one second if it becomes wet or moist take it off and put another one in fact if you don't have a replacement you're better off without the mask than having a wet mask because remember once it becomes moist virus travels through even faster and uh, and has a very good time over there
1: we'll we end the conversation here now doctor thank you yeah thank you so much for participating with us thank you
0: my pleasure take care